0: But if you have your Bible, open it to Daniel chapter 5, we're going to continue our study through the book of Daniel, in Daniel Daniel chapter 5, we're going to jump around a little bit in the text, but we're going to start in Daniel chapter 5, verse 1, I'm going to read through verse 6, then we'll jump forward and pick up in verse 17, all the way to the end of the chapter. So Daniel chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. And his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. Jumping forward to verse 17. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Then from his presence, the hand was sent and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck. And a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning with many distracting thoughts and concerns Father, we come with with many cares that are weighing us down, that are vying for our attention and distracting us from your word, wanting to pluck the seed that your word is wanting to plant in our hearts. And so, Father, we pray that you would protect us. We pray that you would strengthen us. We pray that we would know that we can cast all of our cares on you, knowing that you care for us. Father, we pray that we would come before your word expectantly knowing that our greatest need is to see you exalted, to see you glorified, to see you as you truly are. And Father, as a result of that, sight of you, to have a correct perspective on the things that are happening in our lives, to know ultimately, Father, that you are sovereign and that we are not. So we pray this morning that we would not just simply accept that truth intellectually, but we would take it in the deepest recesses of our hearts and rejoice that relationally this is the God whom we love and serve and glorify. But Father, this can only happen if your spirit accompanies your word and makes it effective in our hearts and in our lives. So we pray that you would do that. And that we would be humbled and tremble at your word and seek refuge in you and you alone. We ask this all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, it's hard to believe but um, because it's gone by so quickly. But I've been a married man now, married to my wife, as of today for exactly two years, three months, and five days. And I've got a long way to go to catch up to my parents because they're currently, as of today, celebrating their 34th anniversary. But it's gone by really quickly for my wife and I. But one of the interesting things that I've noticed over the past two years about marriage is how you begin to acquire a taste for the things that your spouse likes. Do you guys notice that? Is that just my observation? Hopefully that's everybody's experiences. But for example, before I met Kristen, my wife, I don't think I'd ever watched the Food Network channel ever. (laughs) I mean, the thought of sitting down on the couch and turning on the Food Network channel and watching people cook just just made me hungry. So I had no interest in doing that. But Kristen, on the other hand, loves the Food Network channel. And so when we got married, she introduced me to a, a television show called Chopped. I don't know if any of you guys watch that. You guys watch that? I see a lot of heads going up and down. Okay, it's a very popular show, but Chopped is a reality show in which four aspiring chefs compete for a prize of $10,000. And here's how the competition works these four aspiring chefs are given four different ingredients, mystery ingredients. They don't know what they are. And they open up this basket, and there they are, and then the clock starts. And they have to, in the time span of anywhere from 20 to 30 minutes, use those four ingredients and create a dish. They need to come up with what they're going to make, actually make it, and then at the end of those 20 to 30 minutes, they're going to be brought before three judges who are going to taste test the food, their dishes, and whoever's got the weakest dish gets chopped. They get sent home. They're no longer a part of of the competition. And what strikes me every time I watch the show, I don't know if this strikes you, is how stressed out the chefs get as the time draws near for their food to be judged. I mean, as the clock runs down and the time draws near for a verdict to be proclaimed about their food, they get more and more stressed, more and more frantic, more and more active. In fact, for many of these chefs, As they're plating their food, their hands are shaking and sweat is literally pouring down their faces. And when many of them get judged, they start to cry. Now, why is that? Why are they getting so worked up? I mean, this is just a silly game show about food, right? This isn't a big deal. So you don't get the $10,000, that's okay. But why are they so worked up? Well, the reason they get so worked up is very simple it's very common to the human experience it's because they fear being judged they're nervous that they won't measure up i mean sure they're confident of their cooking ability otherwise they wouldn't have volunteered to be on the show but in the back of their minds they're always wondering am i really good enough Will I make the cut? And they all seem very confident when they're interviewed, but in that moment, you see the doubts on their faces. You see, what's fascinating about this show is that the chefs don't just feel like their food is being judged. They feel like they themselves are being judged. They feel like they are being put on trial. And so we all gather around the TV screen to watch them scramble As they await their judgment. Thankful that we're not the ones that have to go before the chopping block. Because the truth is, we all have those fears, don't we? We may not fear someone's judgment about our food. That may seem silly to to us. But we all fear being told that we're insignificant. That we haven't measured up. That our lives haven't left an impression on this world. You see, we all crave, crave to be significant. We all crave to leave our mark. But no matter how much we accomplish, we can never rid ourselves of the nagging sense that it isn't enough. And to make matters worse, in a pluralistic society, the pluralistic society that we live in, where there's no agreed upon moral code to tell us what kind of life is honorable and worth living, no one feels like they even know what a significant life looks like. Because in a pluralistic society, no one has the authority to say what the good life even is. Everything's just different. Not right or wrong or good or bad. And as a result, we live in a culture where we're hypersensitive about judgment. Right? You guys notice that? How many times in your life have you been told, don't judge? don't judge, don't judge. How many people have you seen with the tattoo somewhere on, the bo- on their body that says, only God can judge me? What's that all about? Why, why do we fear judgment so much? Because deep down inside, we all know, we all know that we have been weighed and found wanting deep down we all know that we haven't measured up to God's standards for us and so we'd rather not think about that we'd much rather distract ourselves but our text this morning comes to us like a wake-up call it reminds us that we can only whistle in the dark for so long eventually the charade will be up because God's judgment is coming and what we have in Daniel chapter 5 is the story of a man, a king, who is facing his final hours of life. He knows death is coming. Indeed, death is at his very doorstep. But unlike Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4 that we looked at last week, this king doesn't receive mercy. Instead, he receives what he rightfully deserves, which is judgment from the hand of Almighty God. God. So I'm going to warn you, the story we're going to look at this morning is a very sad story. In fact, it's such a sad story that many of you are going to be wondering why we're even going to look at it. So let me give you four reasons up front really quickly for why we should look at this text. First of all, because it's in God's word. We don't get to choose what's God's word and what isn't God's word. God has shown to us, revealed to us in scripture what his word is. And so we also don't have the option of just ignoring certain parts. So we have to address this. We have to know it. We have to understand it. Second of all, because this story shows us who God is. God reveals his character in this story and it shows us that God isn't simply a merciful God. He's also a just God. He's a God who judges sin and punishes sin and will not tolerate an unrepentant heart. So it shows us God's character. Thirdly, because it shows us who we are. And we have a very poor self-assessment of ourselves, so we need this. And whether you're a believer here this morning or an unbeliever, we all have a lot in common with the king in this story. So my prayer is that we would repent before the Lord together as we see how great our need is. And lastly, we're going to look at this text today because it points us to Jesus so as we look at this story I want I want us to see three movements in the text that show us the futility of trying to outrun God's judgment three movements in the text that show us the futility of trying to outrun God's judgment we'll look at the party the party crasher and when the party's over so first let's look at the party let me read chapter 5 verses 1 through 4 to you again They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Well, the first thing you need to know about Daniel chapter 5 is that it's been about 22 years since King Nebuchadnezzar has died. And over the course of those 22 years, four different kings, Babylonian kings, have sat on the throne. And Belshazzar the main character in this chapter, isn't technically the king of Babylon. Technically, his father Nabonidus is the king of Babylon. But history tells us that Nabonidus was living out in the desert for 10 years. That's an interesting story in itself, but we don't have time to go there. And so in his father's absence, Belshazzar is acting as a co-regent of the kingdom, which is why he's referred to in verse 1 as the king. It's also important for us to know that Belshazzar is not Nebuchadnezzar's descendant. He's not of Nebuchadnezzar's line or a part of Nebuchadnezzar's family tree. So in verse 2, when it says that Nebuchadnezzar is Belshazzar's father, a better translation there would be predecessor. And the last thing that's important for you to know, really the most important thing for you to know, is the context in which Belshazzar throws this party Now scripture doesn't actually give us that context, but thankfully the history books do. And what we know from history is that about just 50 miles away from Babylon, the Medo-Persian army has rolled in and defeated decisively the Babylonian army, just decimated them, which means that the city of Babylon is now completely defenseless. There's nothing between Babylon, the city, and the Medo-Persian army. And it's only a matter of time before the Medo-Persian king Darius comes to the city of Babylon to claim his prize. So as you can imagine, the city of Babylon itself is in utter turmoil. And everyone's mind is wildly speculating as to what the Persians will do when they arrive. Will they raise the city to the ground, killing everyone and everything? Or will they only kill the king and his nobles and then take their place? Nobody knows. But whatever the outcome Belshazzar knows that his time is up. He knows that Darius won't allow him to live after he overtakes the city. And so it's in this context that Belshazzar decides to make a great feast, a party to rival all other parties. And so to do this, he invites all of his nobles, a thousand of them to come and party with them. And he wants them all to have a good time. So he brings out an abundance of wine, cask after cask after cask. And everyone is drinking. Everyone is drunk, including Belshazzar. And it's in this drunken state that Belshazzar decides that he's going to take this party to the level of scandalous. He's going to up the ante here. And here's how he does that. First of all, he thinks to himself, I know what I'll do. When King Nebuchadnezzar was king, and he overtook the city of Jerusalem, he robbed that God's temple and took all of the gold and silver cups and put them in his, the temple to his God. So what I'll do is I'll go get those and I'll serve even more wine to my guests. And you have to realize there are two reasons why he does this. The first reason is because it's a way for him to gloat in his accomplishments. It's a way for him to say, look at how mighty and awesome I am. Look at how we've conquered our enemies. Look at how much I've accomplished. So really, he's treating these cups and showing them off as if they're trophies. And the second reason he drinks out of these cups is because it's a way for him to defy God. We'll see this more clearly later on in the chapter, but Belshazzar knew full well about the God of the Jews. He was well aware of God's dealings with Nebuchadnezzar, and yet he still spurned God. He mocked God openly by drinking from these holy cups that were only meant to be used for worship. But that's not the only way he mocked God. He also mocked God by using these cups to worship false idols. Verse 4 tells us, they drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So you see what he's doing? He's committing blasphemy here. By taking these treasures of the one true God that were meant for worship for him and using them to worship these false gods, he's committing blasphemy. So that's one way he makes this a scandalous party. But another way he increases the, can- the scandal is by bringing in his wives And concubines. You have to realize this was absolutely unheard of in Babylonian culture. It was a shameful thing to allow your wives and concubines to be in the embrace of another man, let alone one of your nobles, one of your servants. And you see, what Belshazzar is doing here is he's intentionally creating an environment of inappropriate sensuality and shameless pleasure. He's intentionally turning this party into an out-of-control, frenetic, drunken orgy. That's what he's doing. So as his world is crumbling around him, as his fate is 50 miles away, as death is at his doorstep, this is how Belshazzar decides to spend his final hours, by throwing a wild, scandalous party. Now why is that? What's, what's going on inside of him that's driving Belshazzar to act this way? To act so frenetically and out of control? Well, you see, the reality is that when we know our judgment is coming, when we know our end is near, we can't face it. We can't deal with the reality of it. We can't handle the truth that we're not in control. We can't handle the truth that our lives are insignificant. And so we have to distract ourselves. We have to grasp at anything to try to convince ourselves that our lives have been significant, that our lives have carried weight, and that it wasn't just all a waste. So you see, we're not really all that different from Belshazzar, are we? In our nagging ache for significance, we don't turn to God. Instead, we turn inward on ourselves, And we do many of the same things that Belshazzar does. For example, have you ever noticed how romantic love is almost deified in books and movies and music? Honestly, on your way home from church today, turn on your radio and turn it to one of the popular music stations. And what you'll find is that most of the songs there are love songs. That's nothing new really, but most of these love songs are almost religious in their language about how they look to their lover to be their everything, to be their purpose and meaning and motivation for life. And the reason that is, is because our lives were meant to carry weight and significance as image bearers of Almighty God, knowing Him, loving Him, glorifying Him, and worshiping Him. But when we can't know that's true, Because the world lies to us and tells us that our existence is just an accident. We have to look somewhere else. And so we believe the lie that if we can just love someone, then our lives will be substantial. And so we search and search and search for a lover as if we were searching for the Holy Grail itself, only to find that they can't give us the gravity and the weight that we know we were created for. So romantic love won't cut it. Or perhaps like Belshazzar, you turn to friends and family for significance. If I can just have good relationships with my friends and my family and my kids, then my life will be justified. Then I can know I'm living the good life. But again, it's not enough. Friendships end. Families fall apart. And everyone dies. So friends and family can't be our significance because they're not always going to be there. Or maybe you turn to your accomplishments for significance. And so you tell yourself, if I can just be unique enough and do enough unique things, then maybe I can know that my life counts for something. If I can just get that job or buy that house, or earn that person's respect, or make enough money, or have have good kids, then I can know that my life is substantial. problem there, of course, is how can you ever know that you've accomplished enough? There's always someone who's accomplished more, so what's your standard going to be? You can never know. You can't ever know that you've accomplished enough. So accomplishments can't satisfy us either. Okay, well we're in church after all, so how about religion? If I can just be a good enough person, if I can just beat this sin, if I can just help enough people and do enough good things and pray enough and read my Bible enough and go to church enough and evangelize enough, then I can know that my life really counts for something. Then I can know that I'm justified. Of course, the problem with this approach is that God demands perfection. He demands that we be perfect even as he is perfect. And I don't think any of us have the audacity here to claim perfection. So surprise, surprise, religion can't cut it either. You see, none of these things, as good as they are, none of them can give our lives weight and meaning and significance the ultimate weight and meaning and significance that we were created for as desperately as we try to use them to clothe ourselves with glory in the final analysis they'll leave us naked and ashamed if we trust them none of them none of them can deliver on what they promise And no matter how much noise we make, no matter how much we try to numb ourselves with booze and sex and drugs, the truth is that we all have to face God's judgment. It's coming. It's at hand. And no amount of partying will change that. Which is why God sends us the party crasher. The party crasher. Look at verses 5 through 23 with me. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand, and the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing... And shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall and the queen declared, "'O king, live forever!' Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, "'You are that, Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, "'whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. "'I have heard of you, that the spirit of the gods is in you, "'and that light and understanding "'and excellent wisdom are found in you. "'Now the wise men, the enchanters, "'have been brought in before me to read this writing "'and make known to me its interpretation, "'but they could not show me the interpretation of the matter.' But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know But the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. So it's in the midst of this wild party that something utterly disturbing happens. And it's so disturbing, in fact, that verse 6 tells us the king literally passes out when he sees it. And what he saw was a giant human finger writing him a message on his wall. So you can understand why he's a little freaked out, right? So after having his face change color a few times, the king calls in his enchanters and astrologers to interpret what this means. And if you've been with us over the past few weeks, you know that this never works out, right? When has this ever worked out? Never. Well, this is, this, this is no exception. They can't tell the king what it means. So the queen comes in and tells Belshazzar to call for Daniel because he can interpret the meaning. So they bring in Daniel. And the king tells him in verse 16 that if he can tell him the meaning of the handwriting, he'll give Daniel a purple robe, a chain of gold, and make him the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That's the highest that he could make them. And Daniel responds that he won't accept the gifts, but he will tell the king the interpretation. But before he interprets the handwriting, Daniel first preaches a little sermon About the king's pride. And like any good sermon, it has three points. The first point is that the king's pride has been manifested by his refusal to receive God's word. You see, that's why Daniel won't receive the king's gift, that's why he rejects them. By refusing them, he's telling the king, listen, king, this interpretation isn't a result of my research. Or insight or abilities. It's a revelation from God. It's God's word come down from Him to you. But because of your pride, O King, you don't receive it as the word of God, but instead as merely the word of men. Second point is that the root of the king's pride is his refusal to see God's grace. You see, Belshazzar knew better. That's what Daniel says. He knew the stories of Nebuchadnezzar and how God humbled him, but Belshazzar chose not to learn from them. You see, the root of pride is believing that we've earned the good things in our lives by our own efforts rather than by the sheer grace of God. And that's why Nebuchadnezzar went crazy. He went crazy trying to protect the things that he thought he'd earned And his sanity only came back after he realized, verse 21, that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. You see, it was all God's grace. But Belshazzar refused to see that. He refused to learn from Nebuchadnezzar's example. The third and final point of Daniel's sermon on the king's pride is that the goal of his pride was to exalt himself. See, instead of humbling himself in the light of God's grace, the king was exalting himself. And the frightening thing about that is, by exalting himself, Daniel says the king is setting himself against the Lord. And the reason that's frightening is because anytime time you set yourself up against the Lord, you're going down. The Lord will tolerate no rivals. He will crush anyone who sets themselves up against God. So who are you, O man, to set yourself against Almighty God? It's foolishness. It's futility. It's vanity. But you see, every time you and I indulge in pride, we do the exact same thing. We reject God's word we refuse to see his grace and we reverence ourselves instead of him so do you see how heinous this sin of pride actually is and the scary part is we're all guilty of it because at the root of every other sin is pride for example pride is the root of your feeling superior to others because in your mind, you're at the center of the universe. And you're doing better than everyone else. So you pat yourself on the back and, oh, these poor people. Man, if they could just figure it out. Pride is the root of your feeling inferior to others as well. Because in your mind, again, you're at the center of the universe, but you're doing worse than everybody else. You're constantly comparing to yourself to other people and you realize you're not measuring up. So you're constantly beating yourself up. Pride is the root of your worry because you're only worried if you're certain that you know exactly how your life should be. You're certain that you know what's best for you. If you didn't believe that, you wouldn't worry. Pride is also the root of your bitterness because you believe the lie that you would never treat someone like they treated you. Pride is also the root of your unresolved guilt because even though others have forgiven you and God himself has forgiven you, you won't receive that forgiveness. Why? Because in your pride, you want to earn it. You don't just want to receive it. And we could go on and on, but you see the point. Pride is the root of every other sin. And God hates pride most of all. Because pride focuses us on ourselves rather than on him. That was Belshazzar's problem, and it's our problem as well. And God wants us to know, just as he wanted the king to know, that judgment is coming for unrepentant pride. And when God's judgment comes, that's when the party is over. When the party is over. Look at verse 24 through 30 with me. Then from his presence, the hand was sent. This is still Daniel speaking to Belshazzar. And this writing was inscribed, and this is the writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Well, the only thing more sad than God's assessment of Belshazzar's pride is God's judgment of Belshazzar. Literally, mene, mene, tekel, and parson means numbered, numbered, weighed, and divided. And what God is telling the king through Daniel is that God, God has numbered the days of Belshazzar's kingdom, not Belshazzar. You see, God is humbling him. God is showing him that Belshazzar is not in control. God is. Furthermore, God is telling the king that his life has been weighed and found wanting. It's been put on the scales and there's no weight there. There's no weight to the king. There's no significance to the king. There's no glory to the king that really matters. And so his kingdom will be divided and the Persians will take it over and Belshazzar will be the last king of Babylon. Because you see, that very night, Shortly after all the carousing and the partying had ceased, Belshazzar was killed as Babylon was attacked. Again, very sad story. But here's what you need to know, Christian. As sad as this story is, this should be our story. Because if we were to come under the judgment of Almighty God, it would be said of each one of us here this morning, Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. It would be said of us, you have been weighed and found wanting. So may you be destroyed. May you be cast into the fires of hell under the wrath of Almighty God. That's what we deserve for our pride and for serving false idols because we have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the glory of much lesser things. And for our heinous rebellion, we justly, rightly deserve God's wrath and judgment. That should be our story, brothers and sisters. But the good news this morning is that our sad, pathetic little story has now been caught up in God's glorious story because God sent Jesus to come and live the life that you and I never could. He lived the perfect life that passed the scrutiny of God's judgment and he has graciously taken that life as a robe, and placed it upon us so that now God now sees us as if we had lived Jesus' life. And on the cross, Jesus took all of our sin and shame, and he was judged as we deserve to be judged. God judged Jesus on the cross as if Jesus were us. And so in our place, he experienced the fullness of the wrath of God. But thankfully, that's not where the story ends. Then Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to the Father's right hand and he has promised that a day is coming when he will judge all the world in righteousness. He will destroy sin and sickness and death. He will right every wrong and he will make all things new. And for all eternity, all eternity, we will celebrate with Jesus at the biggest party this world has ever seen. And the reason that you and I will be there, the reason that you and I are welcome, brothers and sisters, is because Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath so that you and I can drink the cup of God's pleasure for all eternity. And you see, as we wait for that day, that glorious day, we are currently God's handwriting on the wall. Let me explain. Do you remember in Luke 10... We're going through the the book of Luke together as a church. We just took a break in the summer to preach through Daniel. But in Luke 10, Jesus sends out his 72 disciples to heal people and preach the gospel. And he told them that their deeds would be a sign that the kingdom of God has come. Jesus said it would be a sign of blessing for those who receive them and a sign of damnation for those who reject them. And then in the very next chapter, Luke 11, Jesus says in verse 20, But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, the kingdom of God has come upon you. You see, brothers and sisters, Jesus has sent us out into the world to be a sign to the world and to be the handwriting that God's kingdom is breaking forth. Our lives are to be a sign to the world that the old kingdom, the kingdom of darkness is passing away and the kingdom of God is taking its place. But it's only as we look to Jesus, it's only as we turn to Jesus and live in the world and in community with one another that we will be legible handwriting. And at the same time, we also have to be bold enough by God's grace, to then tell the world what all of this means because they aren't going to get it, just like the wise men didn't get it. That's the privilege that we have of being God's chosen people. We are now the handwriting on the wall. But I hope you can see that we can't outrun God's judgment and its foolishness to try and stand against it. False idols can't save us. Our pride can't save us but Jesus can and if you're a Christian here this morning Jesus has and if you're an unbeliever here this morning Jesus will if you will repent and turn to him but please please I plead with you don't take God's judgment lightly for our God is a consuming fire and he will consume any who stand in his way. Let's pray. Our gracious heavenly father, we tremble before these truths. We know that you are a consuming fire. And if we were to be judged, it would be said of us, men a tackle and parson. We've been weighed and found wanting. And so, We are worthy of of having our very selves be divided by your wrath for our idolatry, for our pride, and for trying to rebel against you. And yet, Father, in your grace, you've sent Jesus to live the perfect life, to experience the judgment that we deserved on the cross. And to then clothe us with his perfect life so that we now have a perfect track record. Jesus' perfect track record of living before you as you have called us to live. And so as your children, we now have weight and significance. It's incredible to us, but you actually tell us that we're going to share in your glory. It almost feels blasphemous to say those things, Father, but your word tells us that. Oh, how great is your love for your children and so, Father, we pray that we would rest in that love, that we would find refuge in that love, and that we would not listen to the lies of the world around us, the lies of the flesh, the lies of the devil, that we should find our significance elsewhere. May we find it in our relationship with you, in bringing glory to you, in exalting you, and loving you. And oh, Father, how I pray for the unbelievers out there this morning. I pray that you would stir their hearts, that they would not try to distract themselves from the coming judgment, but they would know that they have been weighed and found wanting and they are storing up for themselves your wrath for judgment day. Oh, may they run to Jesus. Oh, may you break them down by whatever means possible so that they might have something of infinite value eternal life, a relationship with Jesus. Father, would you do that? Would you draw us to yourself? And may we be a changed people as a result of knowing that our God is a God who judges and he will judge all the world. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray. We ask this in your name and for your sake, amen.